Every Life is Many Days, a podcast about James Joyce and his family in the contemporary novel. I'm Anne Fogarty from the School of English, Drama and Film at UCD. As director of the UCD James Joyce Research Centre, it is my pleasure to collaborate with Molly on this series of podcasts exploring how James Joyce and his family have been represented in the contemporary novel. 2022 marks the centenary of the publication of Ulysses on the 2nd of February 1922 by Shakespeare and Company in Paris. Inevitably, much attention will centre on Ulysses this year. But the centenary also provides an opportunity to reconsider Joyce's legacy and to think about how we view him both as a person and as a literary icon. The many gaps between Joyce the man and Joyce the writer have in recent years been movingly explored in a number of novels that think about his life in very different ways. This series features the work of five authors who have woven Joyce and his family into their novels. Anna Vaught, Nuala O'Connor, Frank McGuinness, Mary Costello and Mary Morrissey. In conversation with them, we will discuss many aspects of Joyce's influence on the modern novel. We'll examine the much mythologized but often unremembered aspects of the lives of his partner, Nora Barnacle, and Lucia Joyce and Georgia Joyce, Joyce's son and daughter. These podcasts explore why Joyce continues to act as such a lively source of inspiration for contemporary fiction writers. They also examine why so many writers feel the imperative to reinvent him and at the same time to query aspects of his biography. These novels re-engage with Joyce, but they also encourage us to see him differently and from unexpected angles. It is great pleasure to introduce our guest today, Anna Vaught. She's here to speak to us about her most recent novel, Saving Lucia, which was published by Blue Moose Press in 2020. Anna has many roles. She's a novelist, poet, essayist, reviewer, editor, copywriter, and proofreader. She's also a secondary English teacher, a tutor, and mental health campaigner. Her array of publications to date is as wide-ranging as the different professional roles that she holds. Her works include Killing Hapless Ally, a fictional memoir about mental illness, which was published in 2016, the 2018 Gothic novella, The Life of Almost, and the short story collection Famished, published in 2021. In addition, she has edited two anthologies, My Europe and Tempest, an anthology on dystopias, which appeared in 2019. Her essays, articles, reviews, and flash fictions have appeared widely online and in print. Anna speaks to us this morning from her home in the UK, 
Anna, uh, a very big welcome. Thank and you. congratulations on your wonderfully inventive and continuously surprising novel, Saving Lucia. Thank you. So I'd like to begin by inviting you to give us and the listeners a short account of your novel. Okay. So it's a story of the last days of the Honourable Violet Gibson, who was uh, a patient for a very long time in St Andrew's Infirmary, what was the, the General Lunatic Asylum when it was built in Northampton. Violet Gibson, who's um, I hope we'll hear more about with her commemoration in, 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 in Dublin, she, uh, in 1926, uh, amongst other things, she went to Rome and tried to kill Mussolini. Yes. Yes. So she was eventually uh, deported and she spent uh, the, the many decades in, in, in the hospital where a co-patient was Lucia Joyce, uh, yes. daughter of James. So that was my starting point. And it's a fictional account of Violet's last days where she's been rehearsing for a very long time the most incredible flight of fancy. Um, mm -hmm. an imaginative adventure. We don't know if she met Lucia. We have, we have no, no, no knowledge of it. I'd, I'd like to think that they would have got on famously because I'd love to meet Violet, love to meet Lucia. Um, but she has Lucia as her scribe and Violet conceives both of this incredible adventure and of recording the lost lives and personalities and fantastical um, intellect and survival skills, which we can imagine in, in other famous patients. I struggle a bit with that word. We'll come back to that. Yes. So yes. we've got uh, Blanche, Queen of the Hysterics, as she was called, Blanche Whitman, the Salpetriere under Charcot in, in Paris. And then we've got who was until after she died and uh, Ernest Jones revealed her identity. Anna O later revealed to be Bertha Pappenheim, um, who was a subject of Breuer and Freud in, uh, on Hysteria. So Violet imagines this adventure and off they go. All the things that they might have been, might have done, had their lives not been circumscribed. And it's also a way of uh, freeing Lucia, both by imagining freedom for her and by giving her a book yeah. with lots and lots of interplay yes. of, of, of Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake. I've gone yes. on a bit there, haven't I? But that's, that's but essentially it. It's a great summary because your your novel, though very compact, is amazingly compendious. So uh, we'll we'll get back to all the, okay. all the figures, and it's a kind of group biography, which again is very surprising, and that wow. you come at Lucia through Violet Gibson. I do. So, yeah. but before we proceed any further, I'd like to invite you next to uh, read from Saving Lucia. Well, would you be happy if I read you the beginning? Yes, indeed. Now, this is, this is Lucia speaking. So this is two and a bit pages. And I'm, I'm quite tempted to read you the end, but, you know, we don't want spoilers. Do we? Uh, <laughs> so this is the very beginning. And it is, it's not clearly Lucia speaking yet, but it begins to reveal itself. Ready? Violet Albina Gibson, the Honourable, was behind bars wearing an immaculate black crepe dress, clasping her finest manners and a lovely lacquered fountain pen for letters to Churchill and others. She was a criminal because in April 1926 in Rome, she shot Mussolini. 
And she was insane with it. An assassin with devotions, prayers, and visions. Not a steady-handed murderer, but one that broke apart most untidily and could not be trusted. In prison, in Rome, she threw a chamber pot at her guard and a flower press at a crack brain. For an honourable lady, such rude things, she said. Then there were the screams and intransigence, strange mystical tantrums. And in 1927, when they put her in the mental hospital in England, behind those necessary bars, through which you saw a fine vista, oh, and the borders were lovely this year, she would never do a jigsaw or embroidery when instructed for her own good. Only towards the end of her life would she do one thing they suggested. She agreed to stand outside with the birds and encourage them to feed on her hands. Other than that, a hopeless, obdurate virago, a strange, dotty old girl, mad with religion and a danger or a nuisance, or both. When she was locked up here at St Andrew's Hospital, Northampton, a lovely old house for those I call the feebles, I'm one of them, as you shall see, the case of murder was cleared up altogether. She was pardoned by Benito, once his thugs were convinced she was on her own. Just a crazy hag, taken leave of her senses, not a killer in a conspiracy. After a beating by Mussolini's baying crowd, prison and the asylum in Rome, and the embarrassment of the foreign office and family, this, this, is what we both have now. What's the right thing to do? It used to be called the General Lunatic Asylum, where they put the people like us. There are many lifers here. They give them routine and mahogany croquet on the lawns and medications to soothe and bars on the sash windows which have been denuded of course just in case they must have lost the old one surely but records of lives as i have discovered and as i will show you here can go awry but as i was saying st andrews is quite a select place if you have the money because you get a well-appointed room of your own to be mad in feather down for your tears even the illusion of a freedom. They are aristocrats, some of the inmates, and all of means, so that's what Violet got. Posh. Still, you are locked in, surrounded by mutes doing crochet. Violet rocked into silence when it was all too much. But sometimes, as you will learn, she emerged and, oh Lord, she was jubilant, full of a reckless imagination. And so it was that in the last days of her last year, when she and I were patients and friends together, she asked me to be her scribe. Violet was determined not to be reduced to hearsay and notes in hospital archives. She was clever too and kind because she knew when I arrived all about me. That I was the dotty daughter of the genius writer. I heard her whisper to me that she felt I had been forgotten. Also, that I had reduced myself, and if I would only buck up my ideas, and she said, dear, dear girl, none of that is good enough, and I long to set you free. So, this is her story, and also mine, and what it gifted to me. Will you come? It will jangle, what with Violet's verbal flights of fancy, but I so wanted to write 
a more or less true story. My own previous work, my pretty inchoate novel, had all been burned up by the family I feared, so I tried like I had never done before and became Violet's scribe. Sometimes I took notes from her direct, sometimes I listened in to visitors, the medical staff, or the most lucid of the other inmates, I patiently assembled and edited and imagined, just as Violet had done with her memory and the tales she needed to tell. I worked like crazy, and then I was sane enough. This is how it began, when the old demented crone tried to find some peace and to save me. When she'd done with trying to change history, oh. She was quite a girl. First chapter. <laughs> Thank you. It's a wonderfully vivid opening, and it introduces readers immediately to that double scenario in the novel, which is absolutely fascinating. The, the unlikely fact, as you say, that Violet Gibson, uh, mm -hmm. a, a prominent Irish woman, and Lucia Joyce, another prominent Irish woman, both of whom are troubled and eclipsed and vanished from history, and both of whom spend almost three decades, it's unimaginable, uh, in St. Andrews, that they coincide in this space, but that we don't, we don't know enough about them. No. And it's also interesting there that Violet becomes Lucia's project. She sees herself as the, the scribe and Lucia's Violet's project as well. Indeed. And, yes. and sometimes you don't know whose voice is whose as well as you read through. I know that's deliberate and we, we took yes. the speech punctuation yeah. out so I just hope everybody can you know enjoy it. So what were the beginnings of the novel for you? How did you first uh, stumble across the, the the factual accident of the, the these two women coinciding in Northampton. And after that, how did you begin to research their stories? Okay, well, very simple beginning. And um, this has happened to me a few times, this uh, serendipitous thing. I was researching something and I, I actually, I forget what I was looking for. It's something to do with uh, plants, I think. And oh, roses, that was it. And I, I happened to see a photograph of uh, a person who appeared to be an elderly woman, I think, in, a, in an old raincoat or like a, an old-fashioned gabardine with her back to the camera, black yes. and white photograph, trees all around her. And I, you, I, do you know the photograph I'm talking yes, about? Yeah. And, um, and then I, I saw that she had birds on her sleeves. And then I looked further and I thought she was in the most beautiful pose that was sort of almost at odds with who I kind of thought she must be, like, like a position of grace and these beautiful, it's just beautiful encounter with the natural world. And I thought, who is that? And that's how it began, just a sight of that photograph. And uh, from there, I, um, I found uh, Frances Donna Saunders, a oh, wonderful biography of Violet Gibson, the woman who shot Mussolini, and yes. just kept going. And then it was through that book and further researches um, that I discovered who she was, and I discovered who her, Lucia was her co-patient. And uh, just other things about uh, both of their histories. I was, I was absolutely enraptured, I must say. And that's how it began. Research after that um, 
just what I could find from archival material that was online in terms of St Andrews, because unfortunately when I was researching it, the archives were being moved from the hospital um, into the into the centre of town, but they were the staff were fantastically helpful to me. Um, the Stona Saunders uh, biography I, I mentioned, um, and uh, the, the the kind of the side of the book that. Um, I, I, I guess I've talked about a bit, but this is the first conversation I've had. You know, I am and I have been since my late teens uh, what we would call a service user now. So um, I was able to draw on my own experience of mental illness, mental health problems and uh, things that were born of trauma. Um, and my love of Joyce sort of fed, not that I'm a Joyce scholar like yourself. <laughs> it's intimidating but it seemed to feed naturally into the language for me and the feel of the book and also and I, I think and I think we might come back to this later because I had a very difficult upbringing and early life which has you know which has changed radically um I had to rely incredibly hard on my imagination and my reading so I drew on that in the book that concept of what you do when you have no other resources that is a great theme because um, Violet in particular very often says that it's those who are locked up, who are imprisoned, incarcerated, who yeah, have yeah. to work with their imagination. Oh, they do. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Can I turn to Lucia Joyce just for a moment to begin with? Obviously, we'll keep winding back to her. And it's always a double her in a way in the, in, in, in the novel, Violet and Lucia together. Um, even though um, she disappears really from the world for the, the last many decades of, of her life, mm. she's now become a kind of public icon. She's very, very much um, held up as an icon by uh, feminists around the world. Um, so her damaged life has attracted a lot of attention. Does that seem ironic to you? Of course. And at the same time, I worry about it because when we're holding her up, as you say, as, as, as an icon and saying, you know, I mean, even the title, Saving Lucia, I've had, you know, <laughs> worried and worried about that because I think, you know, how much are we taking from her? As yeah. we hold her up, are we, in a yes. sense, you know, we're inventing a personality and a backstory for her. So how I react to that is I think on one level it's wonderful. On the other level, I want to run away because I feel a little bit uncomfortable about it as well. Um, uh, so it's a combination of the two things, uh, I think. So, yes, it is, yes. And what's interesting in this series of podcasts about uh authors who fictionize facets of the Joyce family is that Joyce is always there and not there. Um, he has to, he has to be rendered invisible, muted in, in yes. some ways, but he's also, he also is a kind of seabed for images and lots of other things. And Jung very famously and problematically from the point of view of, of Lucia and Joyce, Joyce himself in particular, um, analysed Lucia. And mm. he declared that Joyce and her father were like two people going to the bottom of a river, one falling and the other diving. And that is one way in which the troubled relationship between Joyce and Lucia um, has been analysed. Joyce himself refuted it. That yes. she in a way, suffers for his art. She's kind of collateral damage. She goes way beyond that. She is the artist's daughter, but she never manages to be that artist herself. That, that's one of the many things that is denied to her or that she can't realise. 
so in Saving Lucia, when I was thinking about that, and again, I, I worried about it, I, I was kind of trying to give her the sense of her own work. You know, you know, pals, this is mine. And you've got, you've got your running Finnegan's Wake joke. I don't know, is it, is it a good joke? I don't know. Just the idea of the work in progress. You know, she's saying, yeah, that was mine, actually. So it's, a, it's sort of a, just, just the notion of her um, having books, having stories that are entirely her own. Um, because otherwise she only exists as an entity because of her father. And so this is what I was wrestling with. I cannot, as I was saying before, say I'm entirely comfortable with, with what I've done. It's, you know, it's, it makes me a bit twitchy, but I hope, hmm, I hope I've, I've given her an adventure <laughs> or let, let her have one, which is entirely hers, if that makes any sense. Yeah, uh, it, yeah, yes, it certainly um, does. I mean, you you draw out the degree to which she has to go into a voice. I mean, she's there already in chapter one, but learning to be the scribe and author and comes through much more fully um, towards the end. But there's still lots of questions. So you you by no means attempt to deliver her to some salvation that can't can't really be there for, for her. And that's really my next question. I mean, can a fictional reimagining of Lucia save her or not? It's kind of, uh, saving Lucia is a kind of question, your your title as well, not a statement. It's all well spotted. Do you know, the original title of this book when I was writing it was Passerines, because I was thinking of the type oh, of see. birds that were on Violet's sleeve. And, and then I've got the bird motif, which you, you, you were talking about um, when you emailed me. Um, can we save her? We can hold her up, but yes, I do see the title as a as a as a question. Yes, so I think we hold her up and we say, here she is. Here's who she might have been. Here she here's uh, who she who she could be. And also, isn't she rather wonderful just as she is? From what we do see, um, you know, as as a survivor. Um, one thing that I'm I'm particularly rail against is the idea and you, you see it everywhere you see it in non-fiction and I always grumble about it is the idea of somebody who has a mental health problem um or, or somebody who has a mental illness somebody with chronic illness somebody who's who's disabled being held up as an inspiration I agree that, yes. that, that trope is often it's it's you know it's it's putting somebody in a box and it's often you know it's othering it's demeaning so I I hope I hope I have avoided that with Lucia, uh, partly through having some knowledge of, of the history, but also having been a patient repeatedly myself. Hope so. I, I, I think because your, your, your fiction about Lucia and Violet in the first instance, and then two other women, Anna O, and the, the woman who was analysed by Breuer and, and, and Freud, and then Blanche Whitman, and by widening out, becoming this kind of restless group biography, um, keeps us moving and thinking so that we don't fix these women. And you keep you keep discovering there's even more to know about them and more to know about the world around them. So you can't you can't land on any kind of certainty or or fixity. And it's not that you kind of plunge us into skepticism either in the novel, but that it's it's an exploration. And so I, I love how you keep things open on on that level. That, thank you. That's that's what I was aiming for. There's been a little bit of criticism of the book uh, that I've seen. Uh, including by the odd Joyce scholar, um, that it, that introducing the extra women was confusing. But I was trying to do 
just as you described there. No, not at all. I think it makes absolute <laughs> sense. And I've, I have more questions about that in, in a moment. But I'd like next to come on to the, the idea of imagination, which uh, you sustain as this wonderful thread, part of Violet's kind of manifesto in, in, in the novel. And there are certain ideas that she keeps repeating and that become part of the texture of the novel and the kind of belief system and a way of thinking about how people survive in unimaginable circumstances. Um, she obviously wanted to leave St. Andrews. She Lucia. repeatedly tried and petitioned for it, yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, so what is imagination for all of the four women in, in the novel, all of whom are the only person who really um, lives a life separate is Anna O. Bertha pa Pappenheim. Yes. Imagination is, for me, as I've tried to draw it in the novel, the place over which one has control, the place that is entirely our own. It's inviolate. Nobody else can come in and say, no, that's not how it's done, you know. Um, and so that's what I see it as. And, and for Violet, you know, it's the most extraordinary fantasy because she's been rehearsing a fantasy that makes complete sense. You know, it's, it's humane what she's doing and logical. That's the thing. It's not some dotty, uh, you know, random thing. Um, but it's, it's the place that you have. It's how you sustain yourself. And for me, and I've, I've written essays about this, when I was a kid, I was often very, very scared. And I tried to tell people why, and I could not. So I had my books, and I had my imagination. And, you know, even lines of poetry, and this is really something I'm drawing on, they, they were, they were, it was like a sort of talisman for me. Um, you know, those were my comfort, those were my world. And the notion of the imaginative world as being something which is truly substantial not that one can't tell the difference, because then you know, then we would be in trouble. But it's, it's, it's a, it's a, 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 a beautiful thing and a necessary thing. Yeah, um, as it was for me. Yeah, and I think some of the the comments you were making there about imagination also applied to this kind of troublesome term biofiction, which gets um, very misinterpreted because people keep forgetting that it is fiction, it is imagination, and. The whole point to it is it may take things from reality, but it's going to invent and speculate and be counterfactual as well. Yes. And that's something you do with your four women. They, they can't, historically, it would be impossible for them to know each other. I think it's Lucia towards the end says the possible can be stretched. Oh, It's absolutely. one of her phrases. <laughs> and that's, that's what happens in your novel. <laughs> it is, yes. And can you say just something more about bringing those four women together so that the novel becomes a kind of time machine as well. And all four women become time travelers and they move back and forth in time into the past, into the present, but also into the future where we are as readers. Yes. Do you know what they're doing? Most of all, they're having fun. That's true. That's, that's, true. that's yes. the idea. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's like Violet is, she's literally dotting about and with Lucia getting, you know, more and more confident. She's giving them all presents. What would you have liked? Like, you know, um, but yeah, it is, it is, they do dot about, you know, linked by, linked by the birdies. Um, all the things that, I, I mean, I don't want to say all the things they might have been because, you know, they were good enough. And that's what Lucia says, you know, as, as, as we are, we're good enough. You know, don't hold us up and, you know, think what we could have been had we been better. We, we're already, um, yes. you know, we're, hum we're human, we're, we're, we're um, miracles. Yes, having fun. Yeah, I, I, I agree about that. It, it, it's this big adventure and escapade, uh, but also seems to be a kind of 
both group therapy and uh, a feminist calling out of things as, as they strengthen in voice and get to know each other and visit different parts of each other's lives. Absolutely. And in fact, your, your novel seems very much uh, certainly halfway through when they begin to move around uh, even more in a more mobile fashion in and out of each other's lives. Seems to me like a, ma a magical realist novel. Um, the, the fantasy element of the psycho that you talk about at, at, at the beginning. Oh, yes. Thank you. No, it, it really it really is. It's fantastical. But you see, it's not something I mean, I, you know, obviously it's, it's a bit wild, isn't it? But, but why not? Why not? But it's not something which doesn't make sense because it's, it's, addressing, it's addressing need, you know, and, and a thirst for life. And you also go after uh, sort of given aspects of their of their lives, the, the the shooting of Mussolini, which, like you Ooh, say, yes. which the first chapter <laughs> indicates, is is weirdly turned almost into a comic ep uh, episode because she fails. Yes. Whereas she it should nose. be taken yeah. much more seriously. Yes. She got closer than anyone else. Yeah, and when they, they invade Charcot's house, you know, and they, they, they steal his banquet and play his piano. Um, and, and just things that they have. She's very rude. She is very rude about her mother. And, you know, but, but, that, but it's all... It's just, it's rebellion, it's fun, it's rebellion, it's doing things that they're not supposed to do. Yes, yes. Um, so, yeah, hope you enjoyed that. <laughs> um, can I talk a little bit more about with you about the twinning of Violet Gibson and Lucia Joyce, Violet being the older of the two and predeceases Lucia anyway. Um, as we mentioned already, they seem to cross over. They have this joint project yeah. of... A reviving Lucia, as it were, saving her and getting reviving Lucia, uh, bring energizing her and making uh, allowing her to become the artist that she is. But their voices also seem to coincide. So there, um, there are many moments in the novel where even the narrative kind of tells you this is this is Lucia, uh, or Lucia disrupts things and says this is me speaking. Um, and um, it's very interesting on that level. Mm. The the kind of female bonds that you're exploring here, and, and I think particularly ones that emerge in the context of where they are, St. Andrews in, in Northampton, um, that go out of their isolation, and this kind of kinship between these two women who, as you said at the very beginning, we don't even know if they, they met or had a conversation. No. I like the idea, well, I mean, you referred to it as ventriloquizing, didn't you? But it's, 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 it's uh, they, <laughs> they can finish, they're like a sort of, you know, they could finish one another's sentences. It's, it's, it's a kinship, and, but it's, it's understanding and it's company. And um, what I was thinking of, you know, I referred back to, to being a child and being very frightened and, and having my imaginative world. But beyond that, when you are ill, or when you have uh, mental health problems that will not go away, or when you have psychotic episodes that take you out of the world. To have somebody who is, I was going to say complicit, but that's not what I mean, somebody who, who, who understands that without, without judgment and can uh, you know appreciate what humor there is what rebellion and what survival techniques there may be in there i suppose you know i, I was kind of drawing on some of the people that i've met along the way really and imagining that as a sort of hope if you like for uh, lucia and violet um yeah 
Yeah. I'll yeah. tell you what, something, yeah. if you like, about the nurses that I found, which was fascinating. I don't know. Are you aware of that? No. no. Oh, well, at the very beginning of the book, it says to the, to uh, dedicated to the nursing sisters of Ross Common. Yes. Yes. Well, I found them. They're, they're in Massachusetts. So there's, they were, they were, they, they came as nursing sisters together and eventually went as a family to go and live in the States. And I found the remaining nurse called Aunt Nancy. Uh, and it was such a comfort to me if that makes sense because uh she spoke about how much they all love violet and how funny she was and so if anybody is reading the book you can look at the end and uh, see something about aunt nancy's 90th birthday so that was i guess that was another part of it when she finally became real and i you know great favorite One thing you interrogate very much in, in the course of the novel is the, the whole question about who is mad, what is madness, and that quite clearly the wrong people are being accused of madness, that the historic was Mussolini and not Violet, um, but she is the one who ends up incarcerated as, as the result of, of her um, assassination uh, attempt. Um, so the novel keeps worrying about this borderline between sanity and insanity, but also um, worrying about just this concept of the mad woman. Um, I love the way you delve into Mussolini's biography, for instance, and, and show how there are all kinds of mad women that he creates in and around him and that show up the myth of the fascist dictator. <laughs> yes, there's a lot going on, isn't there? Yes, I do interrogate that um, because, of course, it doesn't make sense. You know, I mean, I mean obviously, one should not go around shooting people, even if they're dictators. Should, should, should one? I don't know. But no, we have to say no. But, um, yeah, it does interrogate that question. And Violet says, you know, Aunt Lucia echoing her, who is mad here? Who is mad? Um, because they're drawing also on the question of morality. Can we say that an absolute moral failure, Violet's asking you, is madness? Um, so, interesting question, isn't it? And, you know, and the language around uh, mental ill health is, is often very, very flippant and remains so to this day. It's a tremendous stigma around it, which, you know, I, I hope I always challenge. So I'm thinking about that too. Indeed, yeah, yeah. And you also write really interestingly, and this is another kind of echoing line in what Violet says, and uh, Anna O. Bertha as well, that uh, Bertha in particular, actually, she repeats that you do not need to heal completely to be effective. Oh, um, yes. Another kind of illusion about mental health that you can deal with the issues. You're either completely mad and locked up and out of it or, or you're healed better um, and everything is over and done with. And Anna O is a good case in point because um, her case history is ended and she's supposedly recovered according to Breuer and Freud, but she continues to have difficulties. Yes, she does. Yes, she does. I I think we're back to the, the 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 trope of the of the well connected with the idea of the ill person as an inspiration because they get better, but the reality is well let me talk about myself I'm never going to get better not completely I am always going to manage uh, probably depressive periods anxiety it's it's managed but more and more or less and dissociative episodes 
as a result of what happened to me. I'm never going to be completely fixed, but I'm resolute that even so, I am out in the world and I'm out and doing. And this, you know, I didn't start writing until six years ago. I don't have a long publication history, but I didn't have the confidence to start because I thought, I'm just going to say, it. I, you know, I thought, well, I'm a bit mad, you know, <laughs> you know, just when I was holding all these things down, I thought that about myself. And then I had this tremendous moment of rebellion since when I haven't shut up. So saving the cheer is, is a result of that too, that I'm going to go out into the world broken, but, you know, I'm still there. Thank you for commenting on that. That was lovely. And um, just a few final questions. Um, I'm really interested in the way that you see history in this connected way and as ever-widening circles and uh, overlapping layers. I'm mixing all my, my metaphors here so that you can't just look at one life. No one can even can focus in on one life, say, if they're interested in Lucia Joyce and not Violet Gibson. That's not feasible in your novel, and all the lives are interwoven. Um, you can't see uh, Violet as a subject without thinking about Mussolini. You can't think about Mussolini without thinking about his first wife and the suicide of his son and so on. Um, and so it continues. And you very often mention the 8,000 and more anonymous women in Charcot's hospital in, in Paris, whose lives we can't know at all except via Blanche, but she's kind of the star of the system. They're, the other women are kind of invisible. So they're, they're the last Lives, the kind of knowable lives and the shadowy, invisible lives. But your novel keeps pushing against those borders so that we need, you suggest to us, we need to know more about all these other lives that we kind of edit out all the time. Absolutely. We do, because those voices, the edited out voices, are just as much a part of the, of the picture as everything else. Yes. Yeah. Then I, I would like next to ask you about a, a, a beautiful and central thread, very strong thread of images, um, the birds, the passerines in, in, in the novel, your uh, uh, original um, title, um, obviously linked with Violet. She's the bird woman. She's St. Francis feeding the, the birds. And there's some kind of element of, um, I was thinking of medieval stories, yes, Chaucer's Parliament you. of Paulus, <laughs> yes, yes. bird fable. Yeah. And um, there's a kind of eco fable element to so things as well all these women are birds and they um go out together as birds to render things topsy-turvy so just uh, some further comments from you um on uh, actually the word passerine which most people won't know and what oh. what it means for you it's oh. a, it's a lovely term oh the pa passerine i'm going to get this wrong aren't I? <laughs> the pa passerine refers to a particular group of birds uh which includes I'm going to embarrass myself here, but which included all the birds that that that, uh, <laughs> that uh, Violet had on her sleeve. So that is where I got the title from. And then I conceived of each of the women being a bird. And also I was fascinated. We know that Violet loved art. And I was fascinated by the, I mean, I refer to um, the, the, the Annunciation. And there are various versions or many versions of that of that painting um some of which have uh, have a little swallow in them and some of which don't and uh, and so i thought 
where did that go? Perhaps it went to Violet. You know, my imagination sort of scuttling off in various directions. But, you know, it's to do, it is to do with freedom. It's to do with art. It's, uh, you know, they are birds. It, it is. And I do, you know, it's interesting you said about Chaucer. You know, I also thinking about uh, medieval symbolism and just so many different things that just seem to and, be and germane. You link, you link the image to Ovid Metamorphosis, the idea of indeed. change as well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's a wonderful image. Again, it's kind of otherworldly as well. So it 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 means it never settles as an image. I also just was thinking of um, a kind of pun within the word. These women are passing around, pass passing themselves off, being passed off, Indeed. and so on, passed by. <laughs> yeah, you get ten out of ten there for spotting the pun first person. I yes. so I thought that's not a very good pun, but you see, yes. Indeed. Um, so, you know, it's an image and it's also there's something that's joyous about it, you know, that's 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 a rapture. And that that was important as well. Um, I wanted to show that. And I'd like finally, I suppose, inevitably to talk about the ending of the novel where Lucia has much more strongly Violet has now died. And, and one fact we didn't mention is they're actually buried close to each other, aren't they? Yes, in, they in are. Northampton. Yes, they are. Yeah. Uh, Lucia's grave, rather grander than Violet's, which is, which is plain, yeah. looks terribly unfinished. Yes. Um, yes. Which has rather fascinated me. Yes. Um, at, but at the end, there are two moments where Lucia addresses the, the reader. Uh, one much more strongly calling out in a kind of contemporary voice, um, I was troubled, but I was theirs. So I suppose I also want, I want, yes, an apology from my family. Yes. I think it's all we ever want. I want them to say, I was cruel. I was a bad parent. I put the work, the wake, the home, the drink before you. So a very charged moment and a direct one, a, very literally a 21st century calling out by Lucia Joyce of her circumstances. Oh, indeed. And you know what? I, 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 I have to tell you, that was a very, very personal thing, you know, because if you are, and now I cannot say we had the same experience, but I know that if had my parents, my own parents at some point said sorry for the things that happened because of them, a great amount of healing would have happened. So I, I am not saying I had the same experience, but I'm feeling it in that quotation, which is, I guess, why it sounds so modern. But I, you know, I think every modern, you know, current reader of the novel will respond. Yeah. We recognise that that that's our language, um, um, so we we do connect. But on the other hand, I mean that that's one of Lucia's moments towards the uh -huh. end. But on the other hand, she simply invites the reader in at the very end, is is aware of the fact that she's created a text and addresses the reader in the final paragraph. God love you, reader, and like I said, feel free to annotate the margins of this work in progress. This strange story of women who lived and laughed and loved and left. Of course, a waking riff in, in the very you. final moments. No, <laughs> you know, people haven't been spotting that, but you have. Yes, I've, yes it's, a, it's a lifting. I loved it. That's, that's my favourite line in the book, I think. But um, And I had that in my head all the way through. That that's where I want to end up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's... Uh, a lovely open moment, I think, at the end as well, because we're continuously reading this work in progress. And we're kind of, um, it's almost like the early genetic version of, of Finnegan's Wake. It remains a work in progress because of Lucia. 
Um, okay, I think we'll draw things to, to a close here. So I'd like to thank you for that fascinating and really rich discussion of, of your novel, um, Saving Lucia. So that's all for this episode of Every Life is Many Days. And I'd like to remind listeners that Anna Vaught's novel, Saving Lucia, is published by the, the wonderful independent press, Blue Moose um, Press, and I, I would encourage you to read it and discover it for yourselves. This podcast was produced by Benedict Schlepper Connolly and Ian Dunphy with Ian Dunphy on Sound. For more from Radio Molly, visit radio.molly.ie. Thank you. <laughs>